0: Radio Mano, Papa Chango. Hey, Chris. Hello Tangentlers, my name is Ian, I'm 22 years old and I'm on vacation here in Colorado from Michigan. I've been camping in the middle of the state for about 6 days with my 10 month old husky, Deanie Mae. We came out here to explore the mountains, do psychedelics and see Pretty Lights live in concert. If you've never heard of him, definitely look him up on YouTube. He's my favorite artist by far, love what he's doing. If you guys have never done mushrooms in the mountains, I highly recommend it. Man, is it groovy. (laughs) Hey, Chris. This is uh, John Mott calling you from Hokkaido, Japan. Driving back from uh, the volcanic crater lake Toya to uh, the city of Sapporo, um, which is where I've been living for the past 12 years. And what I just said to you was... Thank you for your great exertions. Um, which means basically, you know, thanks for all the work you do. It's uh, one of those institutionalized Japanese phrases uh, that people say to each other when they're finishing work or when they're finishing a team effort or anything like that. Um, and I uh, just want to say that. I very much, having listened to your podcast for years now, feel like I'm part of a big team, or perhaps a family is a more accurate word, of uh, really thoughtful, caring, good people. Yourself, obviously, being the the patron of us all, having brought us together with your uh, the wonderful content stories and conversations that you have. Um, I just want to say that, you know, Being an expat, like you once were, can be tough at times. Uh, Even after 12 years, um, there are times when I feel lonely. Uh, Even being married to a wonderful woman with a wonderful Japanese family that loves me and I love them, still I feel lonely sometimes. Still I want scintillating conversation with strangers that just doesn't happen as often as I'd like it to. Um, and after uh listening to your podcast, I always feel refreshed, and so I'm real thankful for that and uh yeah, if you ever want to come to uh support Japan, hit me up because I'll whine you and dine you buddy. all right, thanks for everything. Cheers, bye
1: hey chris uh my name's Harrison and I'm an Australian living in Vancouver. I listen to your podcast while I do my freelance three d architecture work. And I always come away from your episodes feeling refreshed and inspired. I love that you're living out of a van, that's so cool. I was doing the same for a while when I first got to Canada. I wanted to thank you for being such a source of inspiration and for being so real with your listeners. It's so great you tell it how it is. Keep doing what you're doing, man.
0: Kia ora, ko Jess taku ingwa. So I just said hello and my name is Jess. And that was the Māori language from New Zealand. So we a, are Kiwis living in Perth. We're currently on the road to the Perth airport. Hey, tangentially speaking listeners. Ho- uh, hopefully this is going to be the first sister intro for you guys out there. Uh, yeah, as my sister said, we're off to the airport because I, my name's Renee, hello everyone, uh, am off to Nepal to go and see some kids that are pretty damn amazing and very humbling human beings to be around it's my third trip back pretty excited hope everyone out there has got something exciting in their life that they're looking forward to chris the podcast makes my life better keep doing it peace out
2: hey everybody welcome to another edition of tangentially speaking this is chris ryan your host Thank you, Ian, John, Harrison, and you crazy Kiwi sisters. I hope you're doing great out there. It's been a while since you sent those in, but uh, thank you for those. Thank you to everybody who sends them in. I don't know, should I do like, I sometimes I feel like I should just do like a 90-minute podcast of only you saying where you are and what you're doing. It's so fascinating to me. And gratifying to hear you out there because, honestly, I get sick of listening to myself. So, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I could do a podcast with all of you. Wouldn't that be cool if we all just hung out together? Anyway, this episode is with Lloyd Kahn, who is a super cool dude. Sort of a, I don't know, it's occurred to me that one of the things that I I've been doing with this podcast, not necessarily consciously, but um, there's like a spiritual gravity that pulls me toward elders. And this guy is certainly an elder. And uh, and I mean that in all the positive senses. I don't mean that in terms of any kind of uh, physical decline. Lloyd could probably kick my ass. He's incredibly fit. And I don't know how old he is. Uh, let's see. He was born in 1935. I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. So, uh, I remember actually there was a moment where we were talking when he mentioned his age and I was like, what are you kidding me? I thought he was like 62, 63, maybe he's, uh, incredibly fit, kind, humble, sweet, and incredibly resourceful, intelligent, productive guy. He is, the founding editor-in-chief of Shelter Publications and the former Shelter shelter editor of the Whole Earth Catalog, which is a document that I sort of grew up admiring. If you haven't seen the Whole Earth Catalog, it came out uh, probably in the 70s somewhere um, and early 70s, I think. And it was just this big, large format book that told you how to do shit, how to build a shelter, how to set up a solar uh, system to heat your shower, how to, you know, start a garden, how to do like things so that you could be self-sufficient, take care of yourself and live well in the world without being a wage slave. Um there's also a there was a millennial a second edition that came out around two thousand um anyway, he was the shelter editor of that he's also an author photographer and for our purposes today, perhaps most importantly, he's a pioneer in the green building and green architecture movement so he's been building shelters and um publishing books about shelters for a long time. His books are Fantastic! One of the books that he published, I didn't realize this is uh, um, uh, Wildwood Wisdom. He gave me a copy. He handed me a you know armload of books when I was up at his place, and Wildwood Wisdom is one of them. That is a book that I grew up with. That is a book that basically it shows you how to um, how to live in the wilderness things, you know, edible plants and how to build a trap for animals, how to build yourself a little lean to to sleep in at night. When I was like eight, nine, 10 years old, I read that book cover to cover probably, you know, I don't know, five times. For some reason, I thought the world was about to end and I wanted to be prepared. And that wasn't as pessimistic as it sounded. I was kind of looking forward to it. Still am kind of disappointed it hasn't happened yet. I should probably see a therapist about that, shouldn't I? Anyway, uh, he's got all these fantastic books, uh, small homes, tiny homes, builders of the Pacific Coast. They sort of profile all these funky houses uh, that people have built for themselves. Uh, Some of them, they talk about how much they cost in the great spirit of Henry David Thoreau and... Walden, where he talks about exactly what it cost him to build his, his little hut that he lived in and plant his garden and all that. Um, anyway, check out his stuff. You can uh, check out his blog at Lloyd LloydKahn, dot com, and you'll see all the books available there. I mean, super cool stuff, even like driftwood shacks on the, on the beach, um, the Barefoot Architect, the Septic System Owner's Manual. <laughs> i don't know about that gardeners and poultry keepers guide very practical information that will be of of extreme value to those of you who are looking for a way to live in this world that is comfortable practical and Uh, does not involve needing to have a 30-year mortgage to a fucking bank where you're paying thousands of dollars. I don't know if I've spoken about this on the podcast, but it's something I wrote about in Civilized to Death. Coming out in a year uh, that uh, these hunter-gatherers from Papua New Guinea who were invited to stay in the UK for a little while with a filmmaker who had met them when he was down there making um, a documentary. There's this amazing moment where they uh, are staying with a family in the UK and the guy gets up and leaves every morning for work and one of the hunter-gatherers says, so why, why do you leave? What's going on? And he says, well, you know, I have to go to work. And he says, really? Every day you go to work? You don't stay with your family and your friends? No, no, I have to go work why uh well to pay for the house this house we're in here and the hunter gatherer says so how many days do you have to work to pay for the house and the guy says 30 years <laughs> hunter gatherer's like are you fucking kidding me dude like if i need a house my friends and i get together and in a couple of days we make a house It costs you 30 years of your life? So that's something that Lloyd Kahn has been looking at and trying to alleviate his entire life. So if you also think that it's fucking crazy to spend 30 years of your life paying for a box to keep you out of the rain, this is the episode for you. But before I bring you into our conversation, Might as well do some housekeeping. My mom asked me to say something about t-shirts. Apparently t-shirt sales have trailed off recently because I've failed to mention it. I failed to mention all this stuff I have to mention like the Patreon thing and the swag and all this stuff and... You know, I just always assume you've heard it, and you know, and you don't need me to say it again, but it turns out that when I don't say it, then people forget to buy t-shirts and beer cozies and stickers and all that shit, so here we go. Please go to tangentiallyspeaking.com, click on the store, and buy yourself some swag. You got stickers, you got beer cozies. You got t-shirts made by Sure Design T-shirts in Thailand. And let me tell you something about these t-shirts. Do you have nipples? Because if you have nipples, you're going to like these shirts. They are so nipple friendly. A friend of mine, a woman who has nipples, said that they make her nipples feel really good. And you know what? Even if you're a guy, you've got nipples, right? I mean, most of your friends have nipples. Your kids have nipples. Everybody has nipples, so... What's not to like? These are nipple-friendly shirts. I'm telling you folks, if your nipples aren't pleased, money back guarantee. Even if only one nipple isn't pleased, we'll give you half your money back. How about that? Anyway, go to tangentially speaking. We got t-shirts there. The Civilized to Death shirts are, you know, incredibly popular. They're all over the world. It's a way, these shirts are a way to identify yourself to other tangentially speaking listeners. It's like a secret society. You're all out there. You might be sitting next to someone at a cafe who also listens to Tangentially Speaking. How are you going to know? How are you going to know? You're not going to walk over to the table and say, hey, how are you? Um, Do you happen to listen to a podcast called Tangentially Speaking with this dude, Chris Ryan, who wrote this book about sex and prehistory? You're not going to just walk up to tables and say that to people. That's probably not going to work out well. But if you're wearing a shirt, that says Vanthropology on it and there's a picture, there's a drawing of Scarlett Johansson with me waving from the window while I'm driving Scarlett Jovansen across the desert. That really hot man or woman or non-binary gendered person sitting at that table is going to see you in that shirt or in your sad bonobo civilized to death shirt. Or in your Tangentially Speaking shirt or your paleo modern shirt or whatever the fuck shirt you bought from my mom at TangentiallySpeaking.com. And that person is going to go, hey, do you listen to Tangentially Speaking by that guy? And you're going to say, yeah. And then you're going to end up sitting together and chatting and, and who knows. You might end up going to Bali together. You might. It could happen. Stranger things have happened. Trust me. Other ways to identify yourself to attractive tangentially speaking listeners would be to buy a copy or several of Tangentially Reading. You could be sitting there in the cafe holding a copy of Tangentially Reading, which will no doubt attract these people at other tables. Even if they don't listen to the podcast, they may just come over and say, hey, what's that book about? That looks interesting. Is that Wim Hof on the cover? Is that Joe Rogan? Is that Duncan Trussell? I love those guys. Is that Mary Roach? I've read all her books. See, I don't know about dating apps. In my day, that's how you met people. You sat there with something interesting in your hands and waited like a spider sometimes you wait a long time (laughs) sometimes I waited through most of the 80s but hey it works occasionally believe me or don't I don't know anyway please buy shit from my mom it makes her happy her name's Julie put something in the note where it says additional information lots of people say hi Julie and she fucking loves that so thank you uh, Thank you to everyone who supports this podcast on patreon.com. You know how that works. Should I just record like a pre-recorded thing and stick it on? I used to have a pre-recorded thing and I stuck it on at the end of every episode. And, uh... I don't know. I'm always struggling with this stuff because on the one hand, that way I don't forget to thank Basin and range who do the intro music. I don't forget to thank Carsey Blanton. But since I do so many of these and I'm imagining you out there listening to these, I don't want to bore you. I don't want you to have to listen to the same thing every time. And it's like, they know that they know about Patreon. They know it's Carsey. They know, that it's basin and range at the beginning. I don't they're not stupid. I don't need to keep saying this shit over and over again. But I guess it's a show and people come in and listen to one episode. Maybe I should. I don't know. I don't know. The thing about this podcast is it's like one of Lloyd Kahn's buildings. It's unique. It's handcrafted. It's hand-hewn lumber. It's all it's it's not out of a box, folks. This is small batch. Hand hewn, yeah, there's a good word. Hewn, what so hewn is the participle or the adjective form. What's do you hew wood? Are you hand hewing that lumber? Lloyd would know, but I don't anyway. Thank you, and those of you who use the Amazon link on my website on tangentiallyspeaking.com or chrisryanphd.com or that com it's all the same thing with different names um, use that amazon affiliate link right there and about 5% of whatever you spend on that behemoth gets kicked back my way to support my endeavors not the podcast amazon does not is not affiliated with this podcast in any way but that funding helps Put diesel in scarlet Joe vanson, pays the insurance, puts tires on her, and things like that, which then frees me up to do other things like for example, record a podcast, drive around the country meeting people like Lloyd Kahn. Yes, you helped fund my trip up to beautiful Bolinas, California, where Lloyd lives. I got to meet him, hang out with him. None of this Skype bullshit. I got to sit in his kitchen that he built at the table, that he built in the property that he developed with the gardens and the plants and the workshop, and I got to experience the whole Lloyd Kahn experience, which was fucking fantastic. So, thank you for that. Without further ado, I'm going to shut the fuck up and go to the podcast and this is a song I've played on an earlier episode but I'm going to play it again because it's a great song and it's by uh, a guy who listens to the podcast Goliath Flores. The song is called I Don't Think You Understand and it's um, (laughs) very appropriate to this episode because it's about Kids and screens and losing the experience of life for this virtual experience, a virtual life, which just isn't the same fucking thing, man. It's like the difference between having sex with a person and watching porn. Don't be passive. Get out there and live it. Don't fucking watch it. Hey, I do it too. I'm not judging anyone. I get sucked into that fucking screen, and suddenly it's the end of the day, and I wonder what the hell happened, and I forgot my body, I forgot the weather, I forgot the smell of the air. Fuck that. I mean, there's so much we can't control. What's going on in the world right now is a shit storm, and God, I just read today that two-thirds of the animals on earth have been wiped out in the last two generations two-thirds of the living things on the planet have been killed in the last the population of living things on the earth is a third of what it was when i was a kid not counting humans fuck we can't control that we can't control it but you know what it's like it's like the individual life you can't control the fact that you're getting older that you're gonna die I'm getting older, I'm going to die, but God damn it, I'm going to try to enjoy what I've got left. No matter how old you are, that is really, I think, the only viable response to these crazy, fucked up days that we're living through. Try to enjoy it, and that means live it, not watch it. Anyway, this is Goliath Flores. The song is called, I Don't Think You Understand... You can check him out on Spotify. Uh you can fuck him fuck him. You can check him out at his website. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, which is goliathflores.com, G-O-L-I-A-T-H, Goliath, and Flores is F-L-O-R-E-S dot com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Thanks for sending in your intro clips to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com i listen to them all i love them all and i will eventually play them all be well everybody i'll talk to you soon
1: Stone. And now you've
2: ladies and gentlemen i'm sitting at a big wooden table in bolinas california i see a copy of the joy of cooking down there (laughs) almost buried under a pile of what are those leaks uh yeah leaks Leaks. yeah there are leaks on the table so this is i this is a house i wish you could see this because it's like a it's like a a boot that's been well worn it's comfortable and beautiful and smells like good food thank you for having me here sure i i think i saw this place on a video did you send me a video mm-hmm. and yeah. and they came into the house right yeah yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. Much that was the people from barcelona oh so 20 okay minute video. oh they did there's the video
3: a six minute okay. One. Okay. right i think called, i saw both the shelter, of shelter and then there's a longer one
2: yeah yeah so we were talking earlier you're i guess you're most well known for your I, how would I say this? Are you I think I saw you speak in Portland, Oregon. Did Could you be at Powell's? Yeah, yeah, Book Powell's Store. or somewhere. It was about tiny houses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe four years ago, something yeah. like that five yeah. years ago yeah,
3: I, 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 that, that was my tour for that book
2: right tiny homes tiny homes right yeah. so are you one of the founders of the tiny home movement is Is that a fair assessment, or do we even think of it that way
3: it 's just that it you know like we used to do stuff like we used to use uh, used wood and we tried to use solar energy and you know do as much as we could by hand we didn 't call it green building back then. And uh, so uh, the tiny homes, the tiny houses uh, idea kind of got real popular about 10 years ago. But in 1973, the heart of our book, Shelter, which is a very popular book on building, was five tiny little houses. that We drew every stick of wood in the book with different roof shapes. So the heart of that book was tiny houses. And uh, that was 45 years ago. So it, it it you know, it's kind of like it there's just evolution sometimes takes a big kawump and it's suddenly it's it's out to a whole bunch of new people. Right. So the tiny house movement, um I guess we start I started in two thousand and four putting together a i call it tiny homes because I think a home is more than a house. And so but I I'm on to other things now, you know. I used to build domes and everybody said I was the dome person and mm. tiny homes I you, you dropped know, the domes, though. I dropped
2: them because they didn't work. Is it because of the leakage, or what was the problem?
3: Uh, well, the leakage is just part of it. It's uh, the, the whole surface of the building is a roof, and they're hard to subdivide. They're hard to add on to. Mm. Um, I, I ended up doing a... Um, I ended up doing a publication called Refried Domes, which was a 64-page newsprint publication that I sent around to people it, so I wouldn't have to keep saying the same thing over and over again to everybody. You know, here's why I don't think they work. And however, if, if you want the mathematics, I'm here's the mathematics for the, you know, the, if, you, if you want to build one. And uh, But anyway, on our website shelterpub.com if you go in there and look for domes you'll see all the reasons that domes don't work. Hmm. Well, I, I thought after 5 years after 5 years and of being in my up. dome was in Life magazine a full two-page color spread really? of the dome it was right here huh. and, and I took it down and sold it because I there were too many problems. It was a beautiful dome actually and it did not leak. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever meet Buckminster Fuller? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he came, I I worked at uh, building domes for two years at Pacific High School, which was a hippie high school in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And we were very much influenced by Bucky Fuller. And he came to the school twice to see what we were doing. I've got pictures of him. I ended up getting into a big disagreement with
2: him. I was going to say it must yeah. have been emotional when you decided that it wasn't. It all just that all was hooked up to me.
3: Yeah, it just all you know. I mean, so for we built seventeen domes at this school out of all kinds of different materials. We we tried. I mean, and part of an experiment is you you might succeed and you might fail, and so after five years of doing this, I, I there was just one after the other things. I thought, actually, when we were. When we were going out, we we, we went into the country to put together this book, Dome Book Two. We rented an old resort in the hills uh, behind Santa Barbara for a month before the season. Mm -hmm. And as we were driving out there to work on this book, which we did for a month, uh, I was looking at these farm buildings, and I was thinking, those are so simple. Let's have a vertical wall and just one roof over them. It's made of corrugated tin. And here we're putting together these complex structures with all this fancy mathematics. And so, anyway, that was, I was on the road to um, uh, realizing the domes didn't work. Mm. And okay, and, the, and then the final thing was I took some mescaline one day here. I went up a canyon, it was a beautiful day. I got up to a creek and I was watching water skeeters on the creek, and it was, you know, and I was walking back down the canyon, you know, and um, I thought, what if in that green meadow there, there was a geodesic dome that was deteriorating and falling apart, and it would be my fault because I published a book telling people how to build domes. And so that afternoon, I called my agent, and I said, I'm taking Dome Book 2 out of print. It had sold 160,000 copies. Mm. And he said, are you crazy? And uh, so, you know, from that point on, in the next year, I decided I had a big audience, and I ought to show them all the other ways to build. Mm -hmm. So we did Shelter in 1973. Hmm. You know, so the different...
2: failure of the domes really propelled you into a lot of the other things you've been doing since then.
3: Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, I, well actually, I mean, I started building in 1960. And uh, when I was, were you
2: born? 1935. 35. Yeah. Dude, so you're, I was born in you're the Depression. Significantly older than I would have guessed. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. not doing the math, but you must. 83. Um, Holy shit. Um, good. Good on you, man. Thank you. You're in excellent shape. Oh, you know, the bar is pretty low.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you lower People in my age, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I started building in 1960. I was an insurance broker in San Francisco, uh-huh. and uh, I worked for five years as an insurance broker until I quit. And, um, uh, and but I started building in my off hours uh, and weekends, and so I got really interested in building. Did you come from a family of builders, Did you have a lot of tools around? My dad built a house when I was 12 years old, he built a house up in Calusa and he and I went to help him and I shoveled sand and cement into the concrete mixer for a couple of months on the weekends and, uh, and then one day we got the, the, it was a concrete block house, uh, we got the carport framed, uh, the roof framed and they gave me a a carpenter's apron and a hammer and nails and let me go up on the roof and nail down the sheathing. Hmm. And I thought, I really like this. Yeah, You know, the smell of the wood, Yeah, you know, the hammering the nail, and then there's something there that wasn't there before. So I was kind of hooked yeah. on building, you know, yeah. before I got into doing books on building.
2: Yeah, yeah. I can understand that. As, I mean, I guess you see both perspectives. What I'm thinking is a lot of what I do is so... Um, abstract you know you're just adding pages to a document in a computer whereas you go to work every day and you see what you did yesterday that windows frame now and now i'm gonna you know work on this you know frame out the door and it's like yeah you're really chipping away at it you can see it well when you when you step
3: on the floor that's always a great moment for me i'm not Mm. very good at finishing stuff but i can get it up to where the building is framed and sheathed and uh but uh you know i so i uh, and, and the other thing is that uh, I'm, I'm doing, after the Driftwood book, I'm going to do a book called The Half Acre Homestead, which is basically on this place. Mm. You know, here's how the house was built, here's the garden, here's the greenhouses, here's the chickens, uh, here are my tools. Uh, and I thought, well, m- most of the time while we were doing this, there was no iPhone. You know, and so you think of all the time that you spend on a computer, and on a phone now, all that time went in the building. Right. It wasn't you know you wrote letters but so that's kind of one interesting thing is the other thing was I I just never could find a place to rent. It was always cheaper to build. You know when we came to this town in 1971, there was a house down the road that was seventeen thousand dollars. I thought that's too much money. You know I can build a house for less than that. And so the whole uh, the idea in these building books is that. It's one of those things that hasn't really changed. You need hands to build a house. You know, you, you, a computer isn't going to build a house for you. Yeah. And so I think nowadays, you know, where back then it was sort of like everybody wanted to find 10 acres in the country and build a log cabin or an adobe house. But I think nowadays it's uh, one of the things I suggest to young people is go look in the towns and cities at areas that are maybe kind of run down. And uh, where you could buy a house uh, that needs fixing up and that that's a really an option, you know, for people uh, to do as with with the high cost of rents and mortgages. So in a way, you know, it's more difficult now to build your own house, but the stakes are a lot higher now. If you can, you know, I've never had a mortgage. Yeah. You know, so
2: think what that's like to never pay rent,
3: never have a mortgage. You know. Did you have
2: some money saved up when you quit the insurance job? Or? Seven thousand dollars. Yeah, which was something in those days.
3: Well, I used it to build a house in Big Sur. Right. And when I when I left and sold the house to the people who owned the land, I got eleven thousand dollars for the house mm. and you know house and materials and labor. But right. you know, I hate to think what it's worth now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I had a, I had a little bit of money and and then I, I was on unemployment uh, and uh, and I and I. Whatever job I had, I'd always be working on my own place on my off time.
2: You know? Did you miss the whole Vietnam
3: thing, or did you get sucked into that? I, 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 didn't, I did miss it, because yeah. I, uh, I was too old. Uh, the Korean War was what was my generation's worry, and mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, us surfers that decided we weren't going to go to war. We mm-hmm. weren't going to go get killed because of some old men in the White House saying that you know, they'd want a war. So uh, I was in the ROTC. In college, and then I went into the Air Force for two years after college. So I, I avoided Korea, mm. and then Vietnam came along. Right. There.
2: So you were you were pre hippie. You were like beatnik era.
3: No, I wasn't a beatnik. Then. I was a straight guy surfer. Surfer. You know, and mm. I was building. So I wasn't just totally straight, but uh, I didn't smoke pot till I was 28 years old, mm. and that was a big change. For me,
2: yeah, and when was that? You were Uh,
3: 1960. I guess I smoked pot in '64, maybe, and it kind of got me out of the. It got me out of the insurance business.
2: Oh, really? Is that what triggered it?
3: Yeah, I remember one day I went, I was in the office, you know, and, and uh, I, I took my corncob pipe and I went out and <laughs> sat in the, yeah, I had a corncob pipe and so I, there, there in San Francisco in those years, there was a construction area zone where the the, the uh, vegetable market used to be, now it's all buildings, and I walked into a vacant lot, sat down, smoked my pipe, I came back into the office, and as soon as I walked in, the secretary gene there said, Lloyd, phone call." I got a phone and I'm talking to this guy Bobby about insurance. And I thought, what the fuck am I doing, you know? And uh, and so, so I I took a I took a month's leave of absence, and uh, hitch- I rode the rails, and hitchhiked to New York uh, with a copy of uh, In Search of the Miraculous by Uspensky, mm-hmm. who was one of Gurdjieff's uh, yeah. lieutenants.
2: I think I've read that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah and uh,
3: and and went out and hang, hung out with my cousin in Cape Cod. And uh, here we go. Okay, so I'm hitchhiking back into New York, Saturday morning, kind of. I get picked up by these kids from the Rhode Island School of Design Mm -hmm. in Cape Cod. They're they're going into Providence. He says, there's a Bob Dylan concert tonight. You want to go? Well, yeah. And so uh, we went to this concert. It was like $3.50 to get in. And it was one of those concerts where he—it uh, was maybe the f- second concert where he brought out the rock and roll band. Mm. So the first half, so I, I was right up next to the stage with Tri-X and my Nikon. The cops let me—you know—it was things were loose then. And uh, the first half was folk music, and the second half intermission, and the, some guys walked out with electric instruments, and a lot of people booed yeah. and left. <laughs> and I, I saw. Sure. So then he then he went into the you know Maggie's farm and. And uh, I shot pictures, and I don't know, years and years later, I looked back at those pictures and I thought, that's Robbie Robertson. That's Levon Helm. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I got back to San Band. Francisco and, and uh, went
2: and quit the insurance business, huh. and I went to work as a builder. Wow. All <laughs> right. Well done. <laughs> yeah. So Tri-X, yeah. for people who don't know, there are probably a lot of people who don't know, that's black and white black film.
3: Black and white film. Yeah. yeah. It, has, it has a quality, you know, Like yeah. uh, that's why... I, mean, I guess some people still shoot film. I don't, but I think you will get a quality with film you can't get
2: digitally. Did you sell those photos to anyone? Did you...
3: No, I've got them. I've oh. got them. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of working on a book on the '60s, and I'll, I'll put them in that book. They're, they're really good, actually.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, they, they came out well.
2: You yeah. know. What, what? Uh, when you write this book, you mentioned before we turned on the mics that you read books about the '60s, and you were living in San Francisco. You were kind of at ground zero there but the books that you've read don't really capture yeah the way it seemed to you what what's the major difference that that you'll be trying to depict in your book well i mean okay by
3: the 1967 the summer of love it was all over mm. that's when every you know a lot of people came out and thought that that was what it was all about but i'd say 1963 or 1964 is when it started to happen and for a few years there it was beautiful i mean hate street was just fantastic there uh, before the hard drugs, you know, and there was this spirit of cooperation, and uh, people wanted to do all the right things. They wanted to do things for themselves. They wanted to grow food organically. They wanted to get along. They didn't want war. They didn't want the Vietnam War. Rock and roll was starting, and when rock and roll, I never, I just thought of that now. I mean, in those years, the dances at the Fillmore or at the Avalon were. Uh, it was word of mouth. That's how you found out about it. Mm. And so they were really exciting. And all those groups were, you know, and then you had the Stones and the Beatles and Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. all that was happening then. so it was it was a wonderful few years, and i don't I just don't see that part of it. And the Monterey Pop Festival was an unbelievable. The Saturday there was like another planet. It was like these people of all different tribes There were cowboys and indians and and it wasn't phony and everybody was getting along. The music was incredible. Mm. And so, um, you know, the, the what happened in 1967, there was a, uh, in Mill Valley in June, I think it was, there was the Magic Mountain Festival. And not very many people know about it. And it was um, The Doors. It was the first time The Doors had performed, I think, before a big audience. And a lot of groups, and I think Owsley, dropped acid out of a helicopter or something capsules and mm. everybody got stoned and then a week no it, yeah and then a week later was a monterey pop festival so you had those two things and that is kind of what happened to mill valley in the bay area that's when everybody discovered you mm. know how great the bay area was right and oh, and then in January before those two events in in 1967 was the Human Be-In in Golden Gate Park, right? Which had you know Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and Timothy Leary and Suzuki Roshi and the Grateful Dead, and and that was another one of those events that was just everybody just was blown away by it. And you went the to good that vibes? As well? No, I didn't. Yeah. I was in Big Sur. Uh oh, right. Yeah,
2: at that time. And did you were you around Big Sur or uh, Esalen when it was starting out? Yeah. Did you know well, uh, Michael well, Murphy in that crowd? Who? Michael Murphy? Yeah, I I knew who he was. I, I well,
3: when Eslin I think I first went to Esalen in about sixty three, but it was different then. You yeah, know? It just
2: it started in sixty two, I think. You know, Maybe, yeah, but so it it like...
3: got psychedelized when Leary and Alpert came along. Yeah, and they went down there, and then they started having. Seminars, and I went down to those once in a while.
2: Psychedelized. And, I've never heard that one. I, I haven't either. <laughs> did you just make that up? <laughs> I'm going I'm to use it again. I like that. When did you first get psychedelized? Yeah. And were you were you using psychedelics in those years? Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, uh, so when know, you I,
2: referred to hard drugs, you're talking about heroin, yeah, and that kind of thing. Yeah.
3: Coke, heroin, yeah. speed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, those, those, you know, every, I think everybody knows that, that the hay got very dark. Yeah. And, and uh, the, well, the other thing was, so you had the Human Bean, you had the Magic Mountain Festival, you had the Monterey Pots Festival. It brought 100,000 kids to San Francisco in 1967, yeah. and San Francisco wasn't ready for it. They didn't have food, they didn't have bathrooms, they didn't have places for them to sleep. And it was just kind of like a nightmare, yeah. you know, in the park, and, and, and then things got... You know things I mean a lot of people think that uh, all that we got out of the sixties was AIDS and uh, annoying tree huggers and um, uh, I don't know a few other things Brinola. but. but uh, huh granola, yeah, granola, yeah, yeah, but I mean th- what happened a lot of people left the Haight-Ashbury and went out, and seeds were sown yeah. then, yeah. but anyway, so I'm writing a book just from my perspective and what I saw happen uh in the city and um and uh, and i'm I starting out the book by just describing growing up in San Francisco, and what uh, neighborhood were you in? uh well, it was um kind of near Miraloma Park. It was, um, if you go down Market Street from the Ferry Building, if you go up to Castro Street, and then if you go up the hill there, I mean, you get a couple of miles up the hill, about at the top, that's where I was. Is that a,
2: where that big tower is now? Like a kind of. Uh, oh, oh
3: no, 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 no. That's on Twin Peaks. It, it's huh. not too far from there, but it was it was a neighborhood with 26 kids uh, by a Catholic church.
2: Huh.
3: And, uh, yeah, you know, I mean... I always, I thought that the whole world was like this. I didn't realize how great it was here, yeah. you know, growing up in San Francisco and, and, and being native Californian, you know. Uh,
2: yeah, I guess, so you're talking about the 40s, early 50s. It was, yeah. what was the population? It was tiny.
3: The population in 1955 of California was 13 million of the whole, in uh, whole the state. state. Yeah. And in, uh, now it's 40 million. And I told that to my high school friends. We'd meet for lunch one, twice a uh, year. And I told that to one of them. He said, well, he said, when we were born, it was five million. <laughs> yeah. Five million people in California 1935.
2: Yeah, that's crazy, that's crazy. Were you involved with um, Stewart Brand and the yeah. Whole Earth Catalog? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like you're kind of
3: crowd, a lot of... Well, I worked, I was the shelter editor of the Whole Earth oh, Catalog. Oh, okay, right. I, so
2: I was gonna, when involved.
3: I was living in Big Sur, I was building domes and I had the mathematics and people kept writing me, asking me for the math And I realized that I was writing the same letter to everybody over and over. I thought, well, I should just mimeograph something. And while I'm at it, I'll throw in uh, Rodale's organic gardening magazine and building your own house. Ken Kern's owner built home and all these other things that we were all into, you know, astronomy and astrology and uh, communicating with dolphins and. All this stuff. And, John Lilly was he down there? Yeah, he. Yeah, I think he probably came through
2: there. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I know he was in Big Sur toward yeah. the end of his life. Yeah. Yeah, with the dolphin stuff and the yeah. sensory deprivation.
3: And all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, but when I met Stuart in 1967, he was ahead of me with all that stuff, mm. so I didn't have to do it. And, and then I joined forces with him, and I learned how to make books working on the Whole Earth Catalog. Right. So, uh, and I would used the whole Earth uh, equipment uh, for the first two books I did. Oh, right. And, you know, and then we then we did shelter here in Bolinas in 73.
2: Yeah. I, I, getting back to what you were saying earlier about people pooh pooing the 60s, you know, oh, the 60s didn't work. We saw what a failure that was. I always push back on that as well. It's ridiculous. I mean, the environmental movement, the God, civil yeah. rights movement, women's, women's rights. yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you just...
3: Organic gardening. I mean, yeah. you know, look what's happened there. Right. Uh, yeah. That's, that's Well, you know, the thing that's encouraging to me is that the 30 year olds oh, 20 year olds also, and 30 year olds are, are into this you know hey yeah. we we're just red shelter you, you, how do we do that i mean yeah. you guys were you know and it's, it's it's different from the 40 year olds and 50 year olds this is a different group yeah. and so it's there's just this kind of surge that yeah. i see from my little you know perch here uh, of people that are interested in those sort of things and those are 60s you know, those those are, I mean, they're kind of... Well, They say the 60s happened in the 70s. Yeah, it's not quite true. The 60s happened in the 60s and the 70s. So, like, what we were doing here in the 70s, we were carrying out a lot of those 60s ideas. We were building our own house. We were gardening organically. We were uh, creating stuff, you know, weaving or knitting or... Uh, uh, trying to uh, t- get your energy from the sun. We were doing all those things in the 70s. They were ideas that came. I mean, I was kind of in the whole Earth world, I was sort of the um, the, the, the uh, 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 building person, you know, the, the physical aspect of all that was going on there. Right. I mean, one aspect was looking at the Earth from space right. and thinking, whoa, you know, look at this beautiful blue planet. So my stuff was kind of more mundane, maybe, you know, building and gardening. And, but, you know, the whole earth had, uh, you know, maybe seven or eight different editors who were all into different things. We're having a 50th anniversary party in October hmm. of all the whole Earth people. Really? A lot of people, yeah. yeah. Are they going to put out any sort of publication? It's online. I can I can send you a link. Of, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. They're gathering photos of all of us from those years. That's great. And uh, it's going to be a whole di- a day-long thing in San Francisco out at Fort Baker. Uh, it's it, uh, Most of the people... I went to an early gathering a few months ago uh, that was sort of had a whole bunch of people talking about Stewart and the effect he had on their lives, and there weren't very many people there that were working on the whole earth in the '60s. I was one guy, everybody Mm. the hundreds of other people that came after us, Mm. you know, so.
2: Yeah, I remember that book. My aunt had it at her house, which was very much like your house—very comfortable, and uh, I just you feel at home the minute you walk in. And uh, yeah, I remember she had that, and yeah. uh, I picked it up. I must have been eight or nine years old, and I was just fascinated <laughs> really? by all the wow. all the interesting you know techniques for doing this and doing that, and it really gave me a a, a strong sense that. Anything is possible. You can do anything. Anything you need, you and your friends can make it. You can find it. You can fashion it. It's you true. Know, the, the, just the world of possibility that it opened up was really incredible.
3: It was a, it was a beautiful book. Yeah. And, and one of the beauties of it was that each item that they would review, say like there was a really great book, so they would do a whole page on it. They would have excerpts from the book, mm. or they would show they have drawings or photographs. They so showed a lot of the stuff from the book right there, and nobody ever sued them for copyright infringement mm. because, like, the publishers or the makers of the Ashley automatic stove were thrilled to yeah. get the publicity. So it Great. really worked. Yeah. But I was living in Big Sur and looking at stuff and you know s- figuring out how to do stuff just looking at the catalog.
2: Yeah, you know. Yeah, and in a way, it, and I'm sure Stuart Brand probably is conscious of this. You know, so much of it is a is like um, a precursor to the internet. Well, yeah, you know, it's like that. There would be links now. Well, you, you know, you, where you could just buy it directly from the page. True. You
3: you know um, you know Steve Jobs famous uh, a talk at Stanford. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, gee, you gotta, It's about a ten minute speech. It's on YouTube. Okay commencement, you know, the graduation of Stanford, he said, uh, among other things, he said, when I was a, when I, in high school, he said there was this book called the Holard Catalog and there was this guy Stuart Brand and he said, and we read that book and he said it was like the Google of the, of the era. Mm-hmm. And it basically gave him the idea to do Apple Computer. Just kind of what he said. And uh, so, anyway, Stuart is it, always...
2: Because it was like a self-made yeah, computer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Make it
3: at home. Well, know? and did, and then to go on from yeah. there, what's going on now is Cool Tools. Uh, cool Tools uh, at kk.org. Cool Tools is like the electronic whole earth catalog. And it's a blog. And every week they will review like a dozen things. I mean, I just bought something yesterday that I saw on there. Mm. Uh, some clips to hold down uh, tarps. Uh And um, so anyway, that's continued, that's by Kevin Kelly, who Trained with Stuart and went on. I know him. He's a yeah. systems
2: theorist. Yeah, he's
3: a he's, he's a technology guy. Yeah, he wrote uh, how, he wrote a best selling book on how machines how things work or something. Or something. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, I've yeah. read some of his stuff. Yeah, he's
3: brilliant. He's still based around here somewhere. Yeah, he's in uh, Pacifica. Oh. yeah, he's a really smart guy. So he does cool tools, which if anybody's interested in the whole Earth catalog type of thing, which is reviews by people like us. You know,
2: not ads. Right. Uh, you know, go to kk.org and look for cool tools. Yeah, I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. I I have a, a friend who has a, a YouTube channel called What Makes This Song Great. Yeah. And it's kind of a similar. It's not a review, but he just takes apart a song and Ooh. he's like, you know, this is what and he's a musician and a producer. So, and he has the individual tracks. So ah. he's like, you know, listen to this drum fill here. This is just crazy. And he, he goes through and actually the way I came to him was through Steely Dan. Yeah. And you know, Steely Dan. I don't know him. No, you know, they, they were a big band in yeah. the 70s and 80s. They did a song called Kid Charlemagne, which was ostensibly about Owsley. Mm-hmm. It was about an acid oh, chef, yeah. And a friend of mine knows I love that song, and he's like, "You got to check this out." He takes it apart, and anyway, uh, why am I talking about that? I saw. Oh, it's similar to Cool Tools in a way because yeah. it's music. It's like, look, this. No, is No, I, like I like that idea.
3: Like I'm listening to uh, everybody's playing Respect mm-hmm. lately because of right. Aretha. Aretha, and I was thinking that somebody had to put that song together like, like to tell those girls to sing re 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 yeah Sakatumi, to me sock it to me and the horns to do this and the you know and i i lately i've been listening i listen to a lot of uh 50s kind of music like they call it doo-wop we yeah. called it rhythm and blues with oh, these vocal harmonies or like yeah. phil specter stuff where the backgrounds are really complex and mm-hmm. so that I, I maybe he takes apart songs like that yeah i kind of do it in my mind yeah i think about oh listen to that you know where that organ comes in there and that's all planned
2: well that's know. all you thinking as a builder i guess right maybe songs how are things built. are put together yeah, yeah you are right. thinking about yeah. how yeah. We,
3: yeah. well you know i i think uh that's interesting because i've thought at times that i have an audience of people that are interested in how things are put together. Mm. And any I know any builders going to be interested in this whatever it is. Here's here's how I tie my lure on a fishing line for striped bass. How is that lure tied on there? You know, or what what's the, you know, what what is this uh, little building composed of or it can go into anything really. But, you know, you got people who are just kind of uh looking at uh you know looking at things uh to see how they're what the what you know what they're constructed of and how they're put together, they're put together. the materials and yeah. the you know the design yeah did you study you said you went to college did you study architecture or something no. related i i studied uh, economics because they didn't have friday classes and i could
2: leave for <laughs> thursday and go surfing in santa cruz there you and, go there you go Yeah. in santa cruz did you know uh any yes, the is guys? the answer. <laughs> yeah, like who's the Patagonia guy, y- Oh, Yvon. No, no, no. no. He in wasn't Ventura, in Santa Cruz. Yeah. yeah, no. Yeah, no.
3: It was. Uh, it, it was just like a couple of years before wetsuits. Yeah. So uh, I would spend half my time in Santa Cruz, but it was it was pretty cold. I mean, we surfed in the wintertime with no wetsuits. Uh, you, you, people can't believe it now, uh, but also Santa Cruz was a. There was only twenty-five thousand people in Santa Cruz right. in the wintertime.
2: And that was, it was before they knew about Mavericks, right? Mavericks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Was, yeah, way before. It was way
3: out there and nobody oh, saw it. Oh, I, I mean, if we'd known about Mavericks, I wouldn't have gone near the place. Yeah, you know? yeah. know.
2: just terrifying. I have a buddy who's a big wave surfer. He, he goes out there. <sighs> it's like, come on, man. Yeah. A five-story yeah. building coming down in your yeah, head. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well,
3: they're good. I mean, those guys are good. And yeah. they, I mean, there's only one guy I know that's died there, maybe one or two. Yeah, yeah, the Hawaiian dude. Yeah, Mark Fu. Right, yeah, a big wave rider. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think it was his first day there. Like, he yeah, came from yeah, Hawaii he got off and, the
3: plane, and yeah, you know,
2: Jesus, that's, that's bad. Do you ever see a movie called? And by the way, this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking, so oh, so we can we can go wherever, skip around. Wherever oh, that's, that's yeah, yeah, my cup of tea. There's a movie uh, called Surfwise. You ever heard no. of that? No. I wonder if you might have run into this dude. He was a um, really interesting guy. He was uh, a Jewish guy, was in the Army, was based in Hawaii. He was he loved to surf. But this is like the 50s, I think, maybe even like just after World War II, late 40s, early 50s. Hmm. And uh, he got passed up for a promotion or something happened at work, really pissed him off. And so he quit, and he took a surfboard and he flew to israel and because he wanted to spend 40 days and 40 nights in the desert with a surfboard well, <laughs> i guess he was going to leave the surfboard at the hotel yeah. or whatever but before he went to the desert he was surfing in the mediterranean right yeah. which yeah. is yeah. kind of shitty but yeah um and people saw him nobody had ever surfed in israel before so next thing you know, he's teaching people how to surf in Israel, and he's known as the you know, godfather of Israeli surf. Then he went and spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, and he had a vision that he would meet a, a Latina woman, and they would have, I think, nine children together. And so then he left Israel, came back to California. He was a, a medical doctor and he was working, like just moving around, working. And one night he went into a restaurant and there was this big Mexican family sitting at a table and he saw this young woman. And he said, That's her. And he walked over to this woman sitting there with her family and he said, You and I are going to be married and you're going to have nine of my children. <laughs> and she, and like, what? It, and it happened. Wow. And I may have the number wrong. It could be eight or seven, but it's a shitload of children. And his philosophy was kids can learn everything they need to know surfing. On the beach. Yeah. So his kids never went to school. He drove <laughs> around and they had like a twenty two foot camper. All the whole family lived in that camper. Yeah. And they just drove up and down the coast and he would work in emergency rooms and whatever. A doctor Paskowitz. Is yeah. it was? I think that yeah, may yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. family, like they have a surf shop in yep. San Diego now yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I thought maybe you would have crossed paths
3: with him. I saw him one time when he was in his 80s. Yeah. And he was kind of like an old man, kind of bent over. And mm-hmm. when he got in the water and got on a surfboard, he lost about 30 years. Oh, really? You yeah. saw him Paddling start? out
2: in Mexico, yeah. Ah, nice, nice. Well, check out that movie, Surfwise. Surf Wise. It's, yeah, me- it's interesting. Because yeah, yeah. the first half of it, you're like, wow, what a cool what a cool guy and then the second half you're like no I'm not eh. sure about him yeah 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 because yeah. 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 you see some of the well, people are a mixture of things you know always yeah yeah yeah, yeah. interesting and also is an interesting you know vision of a time and you could get away with something like that I think it would be a lot harder now to definitely like not let your kids go to school and yeah yeah um, so do you, do you think of shelters in terms of you know, I know we've been talking about the practical application, but do you think about the, I don't know, is there a spiritual dimension to it that that you think about? I mean, maybe with the domes, was that part of it?
3: Um, there was. I mean, there was some, you know, trippy thoughts that went on. <clears throat> I mean, the trouble, the thing is with a building, it's not like a painting or a sculpture. You can throw it away. It's a big, you know, it's a big chunk of your time and energy and money to build something and so um, we were you know yeah we thought about the the centering part of the dome uh, but I got around to the thinking of the, uh, the idea that to, to not make a building be a trip uh, you know that I wanted shelter I wanted the rain off and I wanted it to be warm and have a place mm-hmm. to sleep and I wanted to do that in a in an aesthetic way, but as quickly and as practically as possible. Mm-hmm. But as far as the the soulful part, I think that there is something you get when you build your own house that is good for your soul, mm. because you're choosing the materials, and you're you're uh, in our case here, you're you're growing the food, you're cooking it, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff. You you can't be self-sufficient. I mean, self-sufficiency is like uh, uh, like perfection, it's just a direction. So mm-hmm. you do as much stuff for yourself as you can. But when you do that, I mean, when you do a lot of stuff and use your own hands, you get a quality that I think could be called soulful. I think it's something people feel when they walk into this room. Yeah. You know, it's just, a, it's, just it's, a, uh, uh, it's amenable to, uh, it's conducive to uh, uh, feeling mellow and the colors are right and the smells are right yeah. and the materials are right. And I think you know you you get that. I mean, you go around to, I've gone around to a lot of places, and I feel that you know. I mean, I guess my my focus has been on owner built housing, you know, uh, and and what you can do with your hands. But there is, you know, there is. A, I mean, buildings have soul, you know, sometimes.
2: Uh, I, when I asked you that question, I was remembering. I was in Nepal one time, and I was sitting on a hill looking down at this village. And some of the houses were round, and some were square. Yeah. And this uh, guy came and sat next to me, and I he spoke English, and I said, "Why are some round and some square?" And he said, "Well, the round ones are the old ones, and the new ones are square." I said, "Why? Why they switch?" He said, "Well, it's more complicated to build the round ones, and you know, square ones are easier, and the." But I like the round ones better. Yeah. I said, why? He said, well, evil spirits gather in
3: corners.
2: (laughs) And at the time, I thought, well, that's some, you know, hocus pocus nonsense. But then I thought, you know, teepees and wigwams and so many... Yurts. Yurts, yeah. So many indigenous structures are circular around. Yeah. And... And then, like, how do people interact in a round area versus a rectangular area? In a rectangular area, you pick a corner, and that's your space, and you become sort of territorial. Well, or you divide it up. That's the
3: thing about rectangles. You can divide them up into rooms. Right. And so I got back to rectangles thinking that I don't think that there's evil in corners, I think that it's the more the, that in the circular space there's a wonderful feeling that you're going to get. It, it, it's, it, I mean, if it's a circular space with no partitions or anything, right. there's just something there that yeah. is wonderful. Uh, but that um, you know, rectangles make sense for the kind of life I want to live. I, like beds and and refrigerators and stoves and couches are re- rectangular. We are perpendicular to the earth, and so if you try to partition off a circle you're going to run into all kinds of complications Mm. like if you're going to if you're going to add on to a dome say you're going to have to tie into all these different angles going in all these different directions to build your room on the outside if i want to add on to my rectangular house i just make another roof off the vertical wall and there's my room out there yeah and so it was like i didn't want to spend all that time doing the circular stuff, you know, even though it does feel wonderful. But I actually rectangles came about there was I think buildings were circular in, in pre you know, in old times and when they got animals, they they brought the animals inside and so they expanded. And so they went from a circle to a rectangles, and the animals were there. And we show that in shelter, how that transition occurred. Mm. The type of a round building, which had four posts in the center, so that your rafters came in and had another support before they got to the center. So you had those four posts. So when they went to agriculture, they took those that same uh, outline I'm and went like it. this, there expanded it.
2: Posts, yeah. And so
3: you had this, you know... It ended up in, in in the great barns in England called um, Isle and Bay divided, where you had these huge barns, but the rafters didn't go from the plate, the outside walls, to the peak. There there was a there were two walls in the center of the barn that held up the rafters, so you supported your rafters. So. So anyway, I'm, I, I got around. I went from circle madness to uh, <laughs> <laughs> being fine with rectangles.
2: Yeah, and another aspect of the circle probably that is no longer relevant is, is air circulation to get the smoke out, like a teepee or a yurt or something. They do. There has to be a flow yeah. up to the middle, right?
3: Well, you can do that. I mean, you, you can do that. And I remember the first time I slept in a teepee. It was after years of dealing with precise measurements of domes. And I slept in this teepee, and it was a full moon. And I looked up, and the poles of the teepee were just irregular. They were just stuck together, no measurements or nothing. And I I loved the feeling of uh, asymmetry. Yeah. You know, it wasn't... Yeah, yeah. It's
2: almost like the difference between analog and digital.
3: Well, that's another one of my favorite subjects is Mm. like... uh, Evans' brother Will works for a company called Burl B-U-R-L. They manufacture recording equipment, and one of the features of their equipment it is allows musicians to get more of the feel of vinyl. Really, they've got some tubes in these things, and and yeah, and so, you know, Keith Richards wrote this book, uh, his autobiography, which I thought was really good. Yeah, and he talked about uh, when they recorded, when the Stones recorded. Beggars Banquet it was done in a motel room with a tape deck and Charlie played a kid's drum set and Keith said that with the tape you could warp things you could you could have these imperfections whereas with digital it's either on or off mm. and there's I kind of think of it like a kind of like a guitar versus a violin like a guitar you've got dum 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 with a violin you've got You've got all those notes in between, mm. and so I think that uh, you know, the the it, it, it's interesting to consider the digital and the analog yeah. aspects in our lives now.
2: Yeah, you know? for sure. I think you have to blend them, maybe. You know. Well, and you think about the intolerance and the political debates and the sort of. You're in or you're out, you're with us yeah. or against you're a Democrat, us. You're Democrat, you're white Republican. or black. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's become very polarized, which is digital, right? Yeah. Like the intolerance for the ambiguity in between. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
3: yeah, right.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think about that a lot. I lived in Spain most of my life, and the first thing I noticed when I got there was how the Spanish culture is so much more accepting of ambiguity. Yeah and yeah, it made yeah. life very complicated for me like the example i always cite is i never knew where i was allowed to park and not allowed to park because the sign said no parking but people park there and it's like well, <laughs> well i mean if it says in america it says no parking you just don't park there yeah. you know. but here yeah. it's like well yeah, yeah. But, you know <laughs> normally it's Kong not chi, a Kong problem so. yeah exactly exactly Oh, I was going to ask you. So, um, how do you feel about earthships? Do you have you worked with uh, them at all?
3: I don't like them. Yeah, the like same them? sort of. Thing, I, don't like A-frames. I don't like a frames. I don't like earthships. I don't like, I don't like underground houses. Okay, I don't like earthships because I don't want to use tires. I don't even care if they're buried in three feet of soil. I just don't feel like I want to have the vibes of tires. Mm. Uh, I I uh, I. I so so that part of it uh, they're, they're, and people are really crazy about them uh, you know I just don't I just I just they don't don't feel right to me a frames I think are the worst shape that you could possibly have' uh, they're, they're, they're claustrophobic the yeah they're, because you've got all this space and yeah. you know I mean lift that up and make that a roof and have vertical walls eight feet tall and then you've got something to work with and I don't like underground houses I feel like they're I mean, they're certainly dangerous in an earthquake country. And then also, if you have an earth roof, if you get a pinprick in that membrane, you've got water coming in. And then you've got to remove all that mm. tons of earth to get to it. And so, you know, yeah, I know the earthships thing. I just, I don't, he's, he's certainly got a lot of followers, but I, I you know, I don't know. It just doesn't, and it just never is appealed to me. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I was out there recently and sat down with him. I forget his name right now. But, I don't yeah. Yeah. Um, and I talked to someone who who lived in one. I think she she like had friends who owned it, and they went away, and she spent a few months there, yeah, house sitting. And she said to me, you know, Earthship is exactly the right name for it because it is like a ship. You need to be constantly furling and un- unfurling sails. You need these windows need to be open in the morning and closed in the afternoon, and this shade needs to be down now and up here. It's not like a house you can leave for a day hmm. and come home hmm. and everything's fine. You have to be constantly operating it.
3: Well, is it is it like the back wall? Is the back wall an earth wall that's that's a, a foundation of our tires, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. generally they're south facing, they mm-hmm. have a lot of glass, and, and so that's the problem because depending on the weather, you want those shades up or down. If they're up, your temperature goes off the
3: well, that could be any house though that I mean an earth you could have a south facing house with glass, and that problem would be the same if it was a rectangular house, yeah, but
2: it's very highly um, um, insulated oh yeah, you know so and it holds the and eel. then there are like vents that yeah. you open them and you know in yeah. certain conditions and close them so if the vents are closed and the shades are up, and the sun comes out where well, you're visiting your friend fifty miles away, you come home you're you know it's hundred and twenty degrees and you All know plants a, are dead. A
3: stud frame house is really easy to build. <laughs> you know, you're up off the ground. Yeah. It's really worked out. Two by fours are you know, I, I I you know, I started out building post and beam structures for, I don't know, five years and then domes for five years and I came back to stud frame construction. It's the simplest, I mean, especially where we live because we have wood yeah. on the Pacific coast. If you live in New Mexico, adobe. Right. You know, if you live where there's stone, you use stone. But for me, it's just so simple because I want to get on with my life. I don't want to spend my whole life building my house. Yeah. I mean, I've got things I to live do. live
2: in it. Yeah. 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 Well, that makes sense. Have you built tree houses?
3: No, how, never
2: have. And how many books have you published now? 45. Forty. So is the book thing your primary pursuit at this point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're you're uh, as much a publisher as a as a builder these days. Oh, I'm I'm not building
3: really much. I'm yeah. building a little place across the road here now, but with the help of a carpenter friend. But I'm, you know, ninety. I mean, if I'm not fishing or walking or doing a bunch of other things, I'm I'm working out in the office. I, I love it. I mean, I, you know, I love making books. It's just the publishing. I mean, we're. We're broke right now. I mean, you know, we, we're not good at marketing. And so I, uh, but I, so I did, Should you know, a
2: podcast.
3: I, well, I, I'm talking to Evan and Tamari, who's 22 years old, my uh-huh. young consultants, on that very subject. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you can I see need to not do something take much. I, well, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of like an author in a certain sense that I don't want to do any of that marketing. Yeah. You know, I, 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 um, I mean, uh, I, yeah I I don't want to do it. I mean actually I don't even like going on a tour. It makes me nervous mm. even though the feedback is great.
2: You had a big crowd in Portland. I remember yeah. there must have been well, I've got fans. 300 I've
3: got people. fans. It just it just doesn't amount to enough sales. Yeah. You know, uh to, but anyway I've been doing it for I you know I did I've done maybe mostly books on building but for 20 years I did books on fitness. I did the book Stretching mm. which has sold 3 million copies and is in 23 languages it's in latvian yeah
2: yeah all right, so you're yeah. not broke you're making money from stretching. no
3: no no i'm i'm i am i'm am broke i mean because stretching has been half of uh our income for uh over 30 years now half uh, of our income wow. that one book That's it's fantastic. paid for all the other books that don't do well it's not time for an update uh, we are doing an update, the oh. 40th anniversary, oh, in, uh, in the year after next. It's like pulling teeth to get the author to do an update, but we're going to do it. I'm going to go there and hang out at his house in Colorado to like… Oh, I thought you were account. the author. No, no. No, oh, no. Okay. no. these books are done by… So that was Bob Anderson, and then um, Galloway's book on running by Jeff Galloway, who was an Olympic runner in the 72 Olympics, and uh, which is the best book ever done on running. And uh, Getting Stronger by Bill Pearl, who was a four time Mr. Universe bodybuilder, legendary guy, which is the absolutely best book ever done on weight training. It's mm-hmm. out of print now, it was a 444 page book. So I did that for 20 years, and then at the turn of the century, I got back into doing books on building.
2: And were you a fitness guy or something? Yeah,
3: yeah. I what, did all that stuff. I what was out. your...
2: Were you a uh, I was a
3: runner, or... Or... and I would triathlon, and I went to aerobic dance classes. It was really fun, because yeah. I could do all that stuff. Right. And uh, and like I loved aerobic dance classes. I'd be the only guy in the class, you know, maybe some other gay guy or something, yeah. you know, and uh, and that was really good for, you know, and I was I was stretching and lifting weights and you know when I when I hung out with the bodybuilder, I for two years I lifted weights, and uh, I ran with the running guy, and and I you know so that was part of my life was being fit.
2: And what do you do now?
3: I don't do too much now. I walk, I hike, uh, I paddle a paddleboard once in uh, a while. Stand up paddleboard? No, no, a racing paddleboard. Uh, uh, they're, they're They come from Southern California. Hmm. Uh, and uh, paddle a kayak a little bit. I don't ride my bike much. I'm just so interested in what I'm doing now. I'm not doing enough stuff. I have I have all kinds of, of tools in the house while I'm watching television that I do. Like I hang off a rope, I've got elastic bands that I pull on, mm. I've got dumb, dumbbells I use.
2: That's smart. And yeah, I'll stretch while, while just I'm hanging yeah, it out and yeah. you do stuff.
3: And I do like to try to do 15 push ups before I take a bath at night. You know, so just a minimal amount of stuff. Right. You know. Yeah. Just I wish I had of. time to do more, but at the same time, I'm kind of, I was a competitive runner for 25 years, and I'm just kind of bored with training. You know, I've run all the trails around Your here. okay? Yeah, they're, they're okay because I quit running.
2: Yeah.
3: They They wouldn't be if I kept on running.
2: Do you ever come across the whole barefoot running thing? Yeah,
3: yeah, it's, it's, that's a... It's bogus. You think that's like oh, the yeah, geodesic
2: yeah. domes of running? Uh, well,
3: <laughs> well, you need some cushion, you know. I, I, I did try it for a while. I tried running in sandals and it was pretty nice. I mean, if you're willing to, it was kind of like, I felt like I was an Indian because I was, yeah. but I, I actually, me, um, my running friends and I all wear these uh, hookah shoes. They're, oh, they're the thick big, ones. thick yeah. shoes and they're the, the, they, they have a lot of cushion and they're stable. And so they feel great, you mm. know, like if I go on a trip, a walking trip, I'll, but if I go hiking, I'll, I'll wear, uh, you know, uh, hiking boots. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I try to do something every day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's important. I'm, uh, I'm 56. I'm going to get in shape soon. I think it's time. <laughs> that was the prime of my life
3: when I was mid fifties. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, dollar for dollar, Yeah. pound for pound, you know, uh, strength, cardiovascular. Uh, efficiency and um, flexibility, Uh. you know, those three things. Because I was hanging out with all those guys then. You know, I did a book on tennis called Aerobic Tennis, and the tennis coach picked me up at the airport in um, Telluride, yeah, telluride, and said well, I entered us in a race tomorrow. So the next day we're running in a race at nine thousand feet in Colorado. So I was hanging out with these guys, you know, and stretching with the stretching guy. And yeah. I'd go up to Bill Pearl's place in Oregon and get up at five o'clock in the morning and work out with him in the gym. And I I like that stuff. I was good at it, and it helped me get insights into the you know, so that I could help these guys get their message across to people. Right. Which was, don't forget your body. Yeah. You know, our
2: minds are connected to our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Body's sort of the shelter, I guess, of the mind in some sense. Yeah. Uh, What uh, of of your shelter books for people who, somebody's listening to this who wants to pick up one of your books and you know get into the way you approach these things, is there one that's like the best entry, do you think? Or I think shelter, the book shelter. Yeah, uh, I mean, if
3: somebody's really interested in tiny homes and wants to get right into that subject, that book. But shelter, uh, shelter is. Um, it's got a thousand pictures. It's got uh, two hundred fifty thousand words. It was a time in our lives when, uh, you know, we did it kind of by hand. And uh, it's still the and it was and we it kind of encapsulates the 60s spirit yeah you know so that's part of it mm-hmm. and but then there's part of it that shows indigenous structures and the history of building so I, I think that book it book that book never fails it sold about a quarter of a million copies and then the book um, homework is the sequel to it 20 years later uh, is really a good book but. The best book I think I've ever done is Builders of the Pacific Coast. Right. Uh, yeah, that, I just that's looked the at most that lyrical. days ago. That's like an odyssey. Yeah. For uh, two years, I went up there. And so I tried to take the reader along like we're riding shotgun with me. Yeah. And,
2: uh, and the people, actually, there was a Nori. Do you remember Nori's Yurt? Yeah, it was on yeah. Cortez Island. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I know her. She's oh, really? Good friends with uh, Andrew Weil. Oh, yeah. Well, Andrew's
3: got a place on Cortez.
2: Yeah, I've yeah. been there. That's how oh, I yeah. met Nori. She, yeah, she was there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know Andrew Personal? No,
3: no. There was an architect on Cortez that uh, uh, I went and stayed with. David can't think of his last name, but uh, he's he's in that book, I guess. He took me to Nori's. Hmm. And I, cool I went around electric. to those islands up there. It was it was incredible.
2: Actually, I, now that we're talking about it, I saw you in Vancouver. It was not Portland. Oh, okay. It yeah. was, the, there's an island. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you went to city. that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Uh, yeah. yeah, I forget what it's called, Gramercy but, or something. It's a it is a, it is an like island Bra- just under a bridge. Yeah, near Kitsilano. Yeah, it was yeah. a rainy night. too. It was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. No, Vancouver. I I don't know what it is, but I that's my biggest fan base is Vancouver. Really? Yeah, British Columbia. Yeah, it was a
2: big crowd. I yeah. Was impressed. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just real before we wrap up, just real practical stuff because I know a lot of people now um, are looking at trying to minimize their lives. Young people don't want to get a mortgage. They, you know, So they're looking at living in vans. That's exploding now. Um, tiny houses, tiny homes. Uh, wh- what kind of budget are, are people looking at? I mean, with tiny homes, I think they have to be on wheels so that you don't run into zoning issues. Is that right? Uh, well, uh, yeah. I think being
3: on wheels avoids some of the zoning issues, but the zoning is actually getting better now. Um, Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, and Santa Cruz. Somebody even told me that in other, maybe Sonoma County, the uh, officials are are, uh, loosening up on the requirements for building uh, a small place in your backyard, Mm. like a granny flat. Right. You know, your mom...
2: L.A. just relaxed their yeah. requirements. So
3: that's one thing, that because you don't have to, they don't make you get a permit uh, with all the bells and whistles like you're starting fresh. Because right. you've already got power, water, and um, uh, sewage. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, so tiny homes on wheels, I, I think that tiny homes are uh, a, a bit of a, a fad. They're not really, yeah, okay, it's okay for one person, uh, but two people... In one of those little tiny places, I don't think so. I mean, maybe each of you, ha- if you couple, maybe each of you has your own tiny home. Yeah. But I, but see, I call tiny homes like under four hundred square feet, and then small homes, which is the book we did after that, is four hundred to twelve hundred square feet. That's that's the heart of. Mm. Of it for everybody, right, an eight hundred square foot house, five hundred square foot house, not a tiny house. Yeah. so that's and and that book has sold only ten percent of the number of copies of tiny homes. Uh, so go figure, yeah, you know the the, the much more practical book, small homes, right. you know, beautiful book.
2: And you're yeah. not going to get sick of it. A and here, and thousands here's, it, fees, well, here's a
3: blueprint for people. You know, here, look, here's what you can do in cities. Yeah. Here's what you can do in small towns. Here's what you can do in a piece of land in the desert or a piece of land in the woods. You know, here's people converted a school bus. Here's a fixing up an old farmhouse in yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. You know, here's people building in the snow in Vermont. So there's probably 65 homes in there that give people ideas for what they can do. So I think that's, that's kind of my answer to you know, and then as far as I think you also can in the cities, you like you could rent space in the city and fix it up yourself or you rent an apartment that, you know, needs work. And yeah. you just have to be creative in it. I think if you want to live within an hour and a half of a great city, you just can't do it without ha- spending a lot of money. Yeah. Like if you're going to be in San Francisco, uh-uh. you know, maybe, uh, you know, forget Marin County, forget. Sausalito, Albany, uh, um, Berkeley, Oakland's gone. Richmond maybe's even, you know, gotten gentrified. I say here San Leandro, Hayward, Vallejo is where I would go now mm. because Vallejo is this cool old town on the uh, delta. You know, it's on the water, mm. and and houses are cheap there. Mm. You know, or you know, figure out things in the city like. Uh, Two people bought a house in San Francisco out by the beach and converted it into a duplex legally So it cut their cost in half. Yeah, you know so There's a bunch of things that you
2: could do, but I if your question is how much do people need? I don't know Yeah, it depends what they want to do. I have friends um, the dangers. I had them on the podcast. They uh, took off in a van their couple with their dog drove to Nicaragua, I think or maybe Panama and uh, it was like a three-year trip (laughs) and then they flew back home to portland and they'd rented their house out you know they quit their jobs and did this trip and then they were going home got back to portland and they're like okay i guess we have to like tell these people to leave because we're back now and we want our house back and but that means we have to get jobs again and you know get back into all that do we really want to get back into that and so the guy's kind of like you. He's very you know clever and practical, and he's like, "Well, I've been we've been living in this van for three years. What if we let them stay in the house, but we just take the garage and I fit the garage out like yeah. a little yeah. apartment?" And so they did, and it's beautiful. It's got a loft and a fireplace, and this really cool thing where there's a bar, and under the bar there's a table on wheels, so you can pull it out at a right angle. How much square feet? You know. Uh, I'll bet 600. it's four hundred fifty oh, yeah. something yeah. like that, yeah. and it's a big walk-in shower with two shower heads. You know, so a yeah. good part of it is the shower with stone, and yeah. there's a jacuzzi outside. So they just live there, yeah. and left the people in their house and, and get and the rent. They get the rent and they Airbnb the garage when they take off in their Sprinter van, which is and now they have a business outfitting Sprinter vans. So it's this whole, their whole lives transformed when they decided yeah. to focus on quality of life rather than yeah. you know, just get back into the grind.
3: Yes, yeah, so in that Small Homes book, some guy in Kentucky uh, uh, fixed up his carport, which was a big mess, and moved into it and rented his house. Yeah. And so, and he's happy as can be and yeah. he's getting, you know,
2: whatever rent is. Your house is getting paid for by yeah. somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. All right, listen, I'm going to—an uh, hour is all I feel I can steal from you. I'm going to let you get back to your sure. your publishing empire. Yeah. Thank you very much for doing this. You're welcome. I, I hope we pleasure. move at least four or five books. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, people, buy some books. They're beautiful. I've, Evan sent me a bunch of them. They're fantastic. Great. And they're great just to sort of— uh, Just go through because there's no, like, at least the one I read, it's not like you have to read it in order. You can just put it in the bathroom and, you know, pick it up and look. Another cool house. It's shelterpub.com. Shelterpub.com. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah.
4: He said, Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day.